Right on. I think that has me prepared. So we're, we're coming today to the, uh, the end of what you might call a, a mini-series. Um, not that I'm progressing from 1 Corinthians to, to elsewhere, but that I, uh, at the end of chapter 2, Paul finishes, um, I, I guess, a, a certain subject that he's been exploring different facets of. Uh, and no doubt you've heard me mention it uh, a dozen times that we have this uh, dichotomy between the world's ways and the world's wisdom and God's ways and God's wisdom. Um, that being, at least in my reading and in my study, uh, the, the main message of the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and as I say, Paul's explored various facets of that. Um, and... I was thinking of a way to incorporate this as I was uh, driving here today. Um, but it can be, you know, with that dissection, with that dichotomy, whatever you might call it, uh, it can be discouraging at times to see what you might deem the, the world's ways uh, becoming more prevalent, becoming more vocal, uh, becoming more believed and lived out. Um, it can appear like that. Uh, on the surface, perhaps it is like that at a deeper level, I don't know. But I, I was reminded that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he essentially gave it to a very small group of people, you know, at, at most to, to all those who were called his disciples, but perhaps even just to the, the 11 or 12 who were with him at that time. Uh, and even if we look around this this very room here today, there is more people than 12. Uh, so if the 12 people that Jesus gave the Great Commission to can now result in however many Christians there are in the world today, uh, then surely we ought to be encouraged, uh, even if we were the only ones in the world. But uh, praise be to God that we're not. And the, uh, the, the title that I've given to today's message, uh, contrary to what's in the newsletter, but that's my fault for not supplying a, a new title, um, is, but we have the mind of Christ. And so in a minute or two, we'll read through the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But by way of catch up from last time, my points were, were fourfold. So firstly, Paul's message and the whole of Scripture is from God. And that's important because as I say, given that, that separation, if Paul's message was not from God, uh, there would be perhaps strong reason to, to reject uh, his message. But because it and the whole of Scripture is from God, it ought readily to be accepted. Secondly, God has given us his spirit so that we would understand Scripture. It's the tool needed to understand what's in Scripture. Thirdly, the content... And the method of delivery of God's message, contained in Scripture, is different from that of the world. The content and method of delivery is different. And fourthly and lastly, God's message, contained in Scripture, is powerful because it is different from that of the world and because it is from God. So let's read... Uh, so I say the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, all 16 verses, uh, and then we'll pray. So hear now the words of the ever-living God. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And the verses for today. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, once again that we we come and we gather here under your word. Uh, And I echo what Joel said earlier, that uh, you would would place me out of the way and that your people would simply be fed by you, uh, by your spirit through your word. That we would leave this place with new knowledge or refreshed knowledge or whatever it is that you have to impart to us today. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be emboldened. And that we would have faith that the same spirit who was within the disciples is within us if we know you. Embolden us for your name's sake. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the usual fashion, verse by verse, uh, verse 14. To recap, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly or Moriah to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The word Paul uses for natural is the Greek word suchikos. I'm probably not nailing the pronunciation, but more or less that's it. The word is used in the the New Testament six times. Four of these times are in 1 Corinthians, and then once in James, and once in Jude. And because I mean, it's not an inherently bad word, uh, but the way that it's used in Scripture definitely comes with a, a bad connotation. So to sort of reinforce that, uh, I'm going to look outside of 1 Corinthians. So when James uses it, he uses it in chapter 3, 
verse 15, and it said, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, same word, demonic. And in Jude 19, it says, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, same word, devoid of the spirit. So sukikos in its uh, literal meaning has to do with with having breath, being a, a living, breathing, natural human. You can see even from those uh, handful of examples that the one in our, our verse that we're looking at right now and in those verses in James and Jude, that the context and, and alternate scriptural usage uh, shows the negative light which is cast upon the word uh, when the writers of scripture use it. And so to, to paraphrase the verse, we could say, the person who is exclusively alive but has not God doesn't accept the things of God. for They are ludicrous to him as these require God's spirit to understand. So when Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, it's like he's saying that the natural person doesn't have the faculties to accept, receive, or take up such things. He or she, the, the natural person, hasn't been installed with the right equipment, doesn't have the right software, you might say in uh, IT, computery terms, which I'm clearly very hippity with. So it's not to say that a Christian is, is smarter, but just that these things are spiritually discerned. I think it's worth asking the question. So it says the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. What are these things of the spirit of God and how are they different from everything else? Well, this, as we studied in, I think it was the last message, uh, may well be reinforcing Jesus Christ and him crucified mentioned in in verse two of the present chapter Um, being as we discussed at length, his person and his office, what he is and what he does. So being, the, being God, the second person of the Trinity, who is prophet, priest and king. The things of the Spirit of God may well be reinforcing that. But can I suggest that along those same lines, this may be why Paul starts with that word for, for natural, sukikos again being breath and physical. Again, to paraphrase in a slightly different way, the person who has only to do with breath or physical, natural things cannot understand godly things. And this is because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, to quote from Colossians 2 verse 3. The fear of Yahweh or the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge, with fools despising wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1 verse 7. Now there are more obviously spiritual things, uh, things theological such as the Trinity, salvation by grace through faith, and belief in the inspiration of Scripture. Those things are sort of obvious cherries to pick as it were. Uh, But included in this, including in uh, the things of the Spirit of God that the the spiritual person discerns and not the natural, 
uh, is this, uh, as I say, partial or surface level knowledge. So we have non-Christians, as we would, I hope, all readily admit, uh, who have done amazing things in the natural world. But they cannot understand and they reject the true nature or the whole nature of these things. So a non-Christian physicist, just to give an example. There we are. A non-Christian physicist may well tell you amazing things about the natural order, but he will deny that this is because Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us. He will deny that his vocation as a physicist is only possible because there is a God of reason whom created all things with reason, order, and predictability. We've uh, perhaps gone through a little bit before, but I I love to mention it, and it it works right here, that uh, science works on the basis of the future going on being like the past. If that foundational foundation didn't exist, science on whole would not be possible. But for that foundation to exist, that that foundation of reason, of predictability, there needs to be a God of reason at the foundation of that. If we have pure atheism, where there is no rhyme and reason to the world, it's all just molecules in motion doing whatever they might choose to do, then there's no reason to expect the future to go on being like the past and hence the very foundation of science is broken. So the physicist, uh, in our example, uses, uses that principle and uses it over and over and over and over again to do his physics and yet denies, if he's a non-Christian, the God who makes that entirely possible whom without that God, it isn't possible. So as I say, folks who study natural things, natural people who study natural things, often do a great job at it. But they don't understand the true and wholesome and entire nature of what's going on. And perhaps that's part of what Paul discusses as he writes this verse. So the physicist has a partial understanding. The mind of Christ, in verse 16, is what he needs to understand the true nature of these things. My point being from verse 14 that the non-Christian person doesn't accept or understand godly things because he or she doesn't have the Spirit of God or doesn't have the required software to do so. Moving on to verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, Paul here uh, clearly hadn't been uh, reading his, his Gospels, hadn't been paying attention to what Jesus had been saying, because he says that we should judge all things and that we are judged by no one. Clearly, he hadn't read uh, to judge not lest ye be judged. Perhaps not. Perhaps he knew the true meaning of what Jesus meant there being to judge with righteous judgment, as we read in our reading. 
And this, uh, for the sake of looking at this verse, I think it's useful to look at a couple of different translations uh, because I think it helps um, perhaps to bring out the full meaning of what Paul's getting at here in the original. So in the, the NIV, it says, The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. I actually think that does the best job, in my humble opinion, uh, of bringing out what Paul's trying to get. The King James says, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. And the New King James, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is, and it adds, rightly judged by no one. New King James, it has that rightly in italics, which shows that the the writers have, sorry, the translators, I should say, have added that word, but they're doing it not to add to scripture, but to try and better bring out with the original, uh, what Paul is, is trying to get at. So keep in mind the context of uh, being that verse 14 has just told us. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand these things because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person of verse 14 who cannot accept or understand the things of the Spirit of God is contrasted here in verse 15 with the spiritual person who, and get this, solely by virtue of his having the Spirit, i.e. not his own smarts, once again, rightly judges all things but is rightly being judged by no one who is thinking merely humanly. That's uh, what I think that Paul is really getting at in the thrust of this verse. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. It's not necessarily that the uh, the spiritual person, the, the Christian, uh, goes around and, and evaluates every single thing that he or she sees and makes a judgment upon it and is judged by absolutely no one to any degree whatsoever. But the the person who thinks in line with the mind of Christ, inasmuch as he or she does so, makes correct judgments upon whatever they are making a judgment or an assessment upon. So having looked at the whole verse, let's look at just a, a small part of it. And I I mentioned sort of tongue-in-cheek when I said that Paul hadn't been reading his Gospels. Um, I mentioned this. So it says, the spiritual person judges. As a Christian, I would charge you, uh, I think on the basis of Scripture, not on the basis of Tobias, but on the basis of Scripture, to go ahead and make judgments. You can quote me as saying, in context, please. You can quote me as saying, be judgmental. Make sure you are being examining, that you are judging, that you are asking questions, that you are searching, discerning, and hence coming to a thoroughly examined and godly conclusion on whatever you might be thinking about or making a judgment upon. You see, we forget this sometimes, that God is the source of all truth. 
similar to what I mentioned with uh, science and the, the, the fact that scientists cannot use rightly science without God as its foundation. God is the source of all truth. Without God, if there were not God, this thing we call truth doesn't exist, which is hard to wrap your head around because you've lived in God's universe for the entirety of your existence. But it is a true statement. Without God, truth as a concept does not exist. And of course, uh, when I say truth, I refer to what is contained in Scripture explicitly. But I'm also referring most definitely uh, to things that are not explicitly contained in Scripture. They may have their foundation in Scripture, but the entirety of all truth. And when I charge you to be examining, judging, etc., we live in a time when things are often accepted or rejected based upon mass emotion. So I charged you to be judgmental. I would charge you not to be like that, not to make, not to accept or reject things based upon mass emotion or what uh, mass media or even mass government might be telling you. When making such judgments and coming to conclusions, moving on slightly, we must do also examining our own motives. Hebrews 4 verses 12 to 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what I'm getting at there. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So when we make decisions, when we are judgmental, what's our motive in making such a judgment, in coming to such a decision? Because sometimes we might have the right fruit, the right decision. But is the motive behind it right also? Because I would, I would charge you that, uh, to use that word too often, I'll stop doing that now. I would say to you that uh, to God, yes, of course, the, the fruit is important. The thing that you do, the thing that you decide is important. But the, the heart behind it is perhaps even more important. So we want both. But make sure that your motive and your heart is correct. One exercising the mind of Christ, as we learn in verse 16, looks to the heart or the motive, not just the outer appearance, as is the habit of the, uh, the unregenerate man. First Samuel 16 verse 7 says, For Yahweh sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart being what God said in rejection of Eliab eventually to favour David in being the king of Israel. And Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, no doubt you're familiar with it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the mind of Christ uh, yes, of course, comes to the right uh, outward thought, but it also uses the right 
uh, motive, the right heart to come to that thought. And one exercising the mind of Christ exercises consistency in one's thoughts. This person thinks beyond merely the surface level. So from our readings from today, John 7, 22 to 24, I'll get you to turn somewhere else shortly, but uh, let me read this one. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. But Jesus doesn't say, don't judge. He says, judge with right judgment. Now, circumcising on the Sabbath uh, to a degree involved work. It involved, we won't go into the specifics, but you can understand that it involves some degree of work, a minor surgery, one might say. But it was deemed okay because it fulfilled God's law. But in the, in the case that we read of, the Jews were angry at Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath, which showed principles such as loving his neighbor, the wholeness of the new heavens and the new earth, perhaps even rest uh, to some degree, given that, he, given that the healed person wasn't struggling with sickness any longer and had peace with God. So arguably, to a greater or lesser degree, in Jesus healing this person, uh, he was doing things that the Sabbath was supposed to represent, that ultimate uh, state of rest with God. But the folks who were criticizing him for that clearly only looked to the very surface level. Now, Jesus did this thing which, according to their laws, uh, was, was not okay. It was not okay to heal on the Sabbath. That involved some degree of work. Therefore, Jesus, you did wrong. But Jesus says to them, look beyond the surface level. There's something deeper that's going on here, which is actually good. Now, you do work on the Sabbath over here, and you think you're all right because you fulfill God's law, but I've made a man whole. I've, I've produced rest and showed love on the Sabbath. Think beyond the mere surface level. So turn with me to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll start at verse 12. Again, being one of the readings, uh, but uh, I want to recap one or two things. But whilst you're getting there, we need to be careful and exercise humility in this uh, exercising of judgment. We judge rightly only in as much as we exercise the mind of Christ. And the fact we are Christian does not mean that all of our thoughts and judgments are automatically correct. As I say, we, we are right in our, in our decisions, in our judging, in whatever you might uh, call it, only in as much as we exercise the mind of Christ. We have that mind, but we need to exercise it. And so the points from verse 15 Make judgments in accordance with godliness. And secondly, the Christian is subject to the judge sorry, the Christian is not subject to the judgments of the world. Only judgments made in accordance with godliness need to be adhered to. 
So Isaiah uh, chapter 40, and I'll read, or recap, I should say, verses 12 to 17. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? And Paul quotes from this in Corinthians. Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh, of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I I love that section and and there's some similar kind of things in the latter chapters of of Job. But uh, for instance, where is it here? So right right at the start of verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? You can imagine, not that God has a a physical figure as we do, but in metaphor, he he essentially does this. And the the waters of the whole world are in the the palms of his hand. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or held up his hand and... You know, sort of done this and, and looked at the, the entirety of the Milky Way or whatever you might say. You know, this is the enormity of God. It gives you, in as much as we can understand it, it gives you a, a small picture of just how great God is. That being an aside from the, the main of the message, but it always amazes me. But it was verse part of verse 13 that Paul quotes in uh, verse 16 of our Corinthians reading. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him counsel, him his counsel? Which Paul renders as, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the, the word used for, for counsel uh, in, in the Isaiah reading, and my, my Hebrew is not as strong as my Greek, my Greek is not particularly strong, but from my study, this is what it is. So the word for, word for counsel is aitzor, and it's used in conjunction with ish, which is the word for man. And so put together, this uh, counsel and man, we get councilman or counselor, as the King James puts it. Now Paul, in his Greek quotation and Stay with me here. It's not, not going to be too technical. Paul, in his Greek quotation, says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And he uses the Greek word, sumbibatse, which is a combination of sum, which means with, and basis, which is a, a stepping or a walking, or refers to something of the foot. Or we might just say basis, which makes a lot more sense to us in English. So with consideration of the Hebrew original and Paul's Greek quotation, we could say, who has such an intimate knowledge of the vast expanse of God's mind 
or of knowledge in general, that he might give a basis for God's decision or counsel God in a certain way. What mere mortal is going to say to God, you know, God, have you really considered this? You know, I see that you're going to do this over here, but perhaps you could uh, change your mind. You know, I think I might have some better counsel for you that you could do this over here. What an incredible thing that would be to, to say to the Lord. And of course, this quote from Isaiah follows and compliments verse 15, saying the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So in a similar way to the, which the Christian is not rightly judged by one judging in a merely human fashion, so is the Lord not instructed, educated, or judged by anyone. In fact, it is because the Christian has the mind of Christ or is of the Lord that he or she is judged by no one. So I, next section in my, my notes here says, who is the Lord? And it's not a trick question. The Lord, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now, since therefore Jesus Christ is the Lord and we have the mind of Christ, then we have the mind of the Lord which is, I mean, it's almost an intimidating thing to say, really. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of the Lord. And as I say, we, we, we rightly make decisions only in as much as we exercise the mind of Christ. But it's incumbent upon us, especially us here in the West with such great access to the entirety of God's word, it's incumbent upon us to exercise that mind. I mean, for example, I walked in here this morning having having forgotten my Bible, having left it at home. We had a bit of a busy morning getting our boys and ourselves ready. But it was the easiest thing in the world for me to pick up this one on the way in. That's how easy it is. Uh, how much ease of access we have to God's word uh, in Australia here. Whereas there are uh, villages uh, with you know, small numbers of Christians in them where scripture is, is illegal and they feast upon maybe one page or just a handful of pages of God's word. So we have great access to God's word, to God having displayed his mind for us. We ought to put that into place. We ought to study and learn and do good from God's word. So God has given his mind, his source of thought, his way of thinking to those who are his. And hence in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. So it's absurd for one thinking merely humanly to make right judgments of the Christian or to instruct God. This is because they have not the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ only by virtue of him who has loved us, chosen us and saved us and who goes on sanctifying us so that we might exercise the mind of Christ more and more. May we make great strains to be more and more minded of Christ, less and less of the flesh. And so my points from, uh, from verse 16. 
that God's mind, his ways, are far and above any man's. There is no one who can give him counsel or instruct him in a certain way. Secondly, we have the mind of Christ, and so we make right judgments. Again, with the assumption that we are making judgments in line with the mind of Christ. So to conclude, and I often say that my my weak points, I think, in preparation of sermons are both my introductions and my conclusions. Some people do great with them. Mine is short and sweet. These verses mark an end to the main theme thus far of the world's ways versus God's ways. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has saw fit to write more or less 47 verses surrounding this subject and various caveats thereof. So even from that as a standalone fact, and of course I realise Paul didn't write verse numbers next to what he was writing, but uh, for argument's sake, 47 verses around this subject would show that this is something that we ought to pay attention to. Whether or not you appreciate my presentation of it, nonetheless, go ahead and, and read it again and consider what God is saying to us. So the points of this sermon are, are fivefold. Firstly, the non-Christian person doesn't accept or understand godly things because he or she doesn't have the Spirit of God, doesn't have the required software to do so. Secondly, make judgments in accordance with godliness. Thirdly, the Christian is, is not subject to the judgments of the world. Only judgments made in accordance with godliness need to be adhered to. Fourthly, God's mind, his ways are far and above any man's. There is no one who can give him counsel or instruct him in a certain way. Fifthly and lastly, we have the mind of Christ and so make right judgments. And so may we be those who know and love God's ways and disciple the nations with the same. To come back to the Great Commission. May we pray often and with fervour that these nations whom we are discipling, even these individuals uh, and even our own families whom we are discipling, that they will accept this teaching, that they will have the mind of Christ so as to understand it and to put it into place. And let's do just that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, once again for your most holy word. As I've mentioned not long ago, we have great access to it in this country. Uh, And we thank you so much for that, Lord. Uh, But regrettably, often with a a great ease of something will come great complacency. May that not be us, Lord. But so as that we would exercise the mind of Christ, may we regularly feast upon uh, reading and indeed studying in more depth the things of your word. And I pray that we would share this also with others, most importantly with our our primary ministries, with our families, uh, but certainly also to the broader world. And Lord, uh, we find ourselves in a, um, a difficult time, and I pray that we would do that even now, and that you would give those whom we speak to hearts and minds that are ready to receive these things. To your glory I pray it. Amen.